Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, ladies and gentlemen, it would seem someone sneaked into the house when you weren't looking. They've installed a camera to spy on you. They've nicked all the alcohol from the drinks cupboard and they put a volume limit on the stereo. That's right. Big Brother is here and he's not very much fun. Yesterday, the Conservative government of this country brought in a series of new measures aimed at fighting a virus by basically attempting to stop us all having any fun. As if discouraging us from going out wasn't enough, they now want to make it as hard as possible to enjoy yourselves while you stay at home as well. Luckily, we have some MPs left with a little fire in their bellies and a bit of a backbone that were standing up against these draconian shutdowns, and there is now a full-scale revolt going on on the Tory backbenches. Yesterday in Parliament, Sir Desmond Swain called for the sacking of Chief Medic Sir Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty for trying to, in his words, terrify the public into accepting new restrictions in a national lockdown by default. A growing number of backbench Tories are now preparing to rebel against their own Prime Minister. We'll be talking to one of them this morning, Sir Bob Neill, MP for Bron- 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be checking in on the Brexit talks with Annan Menon from UK in a changing Europe. Is a deal with the EU imminent? And we're joined by David Curtin, London Assembly member, who has started his new traditional Conservative political party called the Heritage Party. We'll be asking him why people should vote for it. 0344 499 1000. And we'll be heading across the Atlantic later on as well, ahead of the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. We'll be in the heart of the White House with Sebastian Gorka. Oh, and Boris Johnson's on as well. We'll tell you more about that later. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there's all manner of different headlines on the front pages this morning, some suggesting that the Graham-Brady amendment might not be taken forward, might not be allowed by the Speaker, that the Graham-Brady amendment might be allowed by the Speaker, but might, in fact, uh, somehow fail uh, at the final hurdle, or indeed uh, that there might be enough Tory rebels to vote down whatever the new series of measures are that the Prime Minister wants to bring in uh, to control the coronavirus. We're going to speak now, though, uh, to Tory MP Sir Bob Neill, Conservative MP for Bromley and Chiselhurst. Sir Bob, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. There's a very strange kind of uh, feeling out there uh, in the streets of this country at the moment. Nobody's quite sure what's going on. Some people think that we need to have more lockdown measures. Other people seem to think that we need to have less. There's no doubt that there's a disagreement inside the Conservative Party. What's your view, Sir Bob, on, on what we should be doing? Well, I think what we've got to do, first of all, is to make sure we get the balance right between protecting uh, public health and preventing the spread of the uh, virus, which we all accept, but also um, making sure that we don't wreck the economy in the process and actually wreck just as many lives potentially in the process as well. Because I've got a real concern that the damage that's being done by lost jobs, uh, by mental health problems that people are, uh, particularly the, the, the lonely and the vulnerable are finding, uh, and also the stress that's created by unemployment, potentially, and the number of missed medical appointments that I picked up from uh, practitioners in my area, all of that is potentially going to, in the long term, be as damaging. So that leads me to the conclusion that we've got to have a proper debate in Parliament before we go down the route of further draconian measures. Yes, I think uh, you would get certainly my support for that and the support of many listeners to talk radio. What about the Brady Amendment as such? Because there's a bit of um, confusion, I think, uh, perhaps you can clear it up for us, that if the Brady Amendment doesn't go ahead and uh, the Speaker decides it can't be taken on board, will there still be a chance for, for Tory MPs to vote down the government's bill? Well, well, yes, because the way these motions are drawn up, and it's a bit arcane, you're right, Mike, is unless the Speaker is prepared to, I think, and I hope he will, be flexible uh, about the rules, if you adopted a very strict application, it's a straight yes-no question. Do you renew these very extensive powers uh, under the Coronavirus Act, which we passed uh, in a hurry six months or more ago now, when perhaps it was very necessary, um, but we would, if need be, have to vote against uh, renewal of those powers. Now, I don't want to have to do that, but I do want a, a clear mechanism whereby we can vote on those powers uh, either before they're used or immediately thereafter. It's not good enough uh, to give the government a carte blanche uh, to take decisions which can profoundly affect people's lives mm. uh, with no ability to review it uh, either beforehand or really quickly thereafter so that you can change things if it's clearly going wrong. Yes, and as of this moment in time, do you feel, Sir Bob, that you might have enough numbers to vote that bill down? Well, I, I believe there are very significant numbers uh, and also, of course, the opposition parties, I think, are sympathetic to this uh, as well. And this isn't about um, uh, rubbishing the science. I don't go as far as my friend Des around that, but it's remembering that there's a balance. You know, scientific advisors are there to advise. Mm. It's for ministers and politicians to take these decisions. And that means, to my mind, ultimately for Parliament to take those decisions. Because it's our constituents we've got to look in the face uh, as to the, those very hard trade-offs uh, that we have to make under these circumstances. And I don't think we can park that upon reliance upon one set of experts one way or the other. No, indeed. Um, we'd, we'd be ducking our job. Exactly. And I think the government has uh, been led to a very large extent by these scientists, many of whom are making predictions about things that could happen in a, bad, in a worst case scenario. And I know, you know, we've been through the Brexit situation where everybody knows that there are worst case scenarios predicted yeah. for a reason. But it doesn't mean that you have to be guided by those. And it doesn't mean that you have to make policy based on those, surely. No, it's, they're just one of the factors that you take into account. Uh, and what I'm concerned about is that we've perhaps paid, certainly give the impression of having paid too much reliance uh, to those sort of uh, drastic medical scenarios. Indeed, not all medics share that view. 
but not paid enough attention to the people that I'm finding in my constituency coming to me and saying, look, uh, I'm in the hospitality sector. We've fallen through the gaps in the Chancellor's otherwise very good job support schemes. Uh, we've been running a business, I can think of a half dozen have been in contact with me uh, over the last uh, week or so, and we are going to go under mm. as a consequence of this. And this means people out of work. It means people's lives wrecked. It means sometimes a lifetime's work going under. I think of a travel firm in my constituency. been going 30-odd years. Mm. They're on the brink. Now, those are lives ruined as well. And I think that we're not paying enough attention to that. No, exactly right. Because at some point or other, you know, you have to take the view that subsidising everything, and even when you can't subsidise everyone, you can still, I mean, and, and the Treasury, I think, has been remarkably adept at saving yeah. an awful lot of people's livelihoods, but they can't do it forever. There is no bottomless pit of money. Um, and the taxpayer eventually uh, will be called upon to make it all up. That's entirely right. Uh, and full marks to the Chancellor for what he has done. But you can't create a permanent dependency culture. That That's not healthy. No. Uh, it's not sustainable either. If you want a good health service, you can only do that if you've got a decent economy. If you bust the economy in the long term, it'll be the health service, education, all the other public services that will suffer just as much as anything else. Yes. And a lot of people this morning, Sir Bob, exercised about some of these things that were brought in yesterday, which we weren't really told about. For example, uh, this business of 85 decibels. I'm told a basic vacuum cleaner is 75 decibels. So anything music wise louder than that is now apparently going to be punishable by some kind of fine. Um, You can't have mass singing in pubs, which is presumably bad news for football fans. You can't um, um, uh, go outside if you're supposed to be quarantining. You're going to get money um, um, for uh, you're going to get fined if you maliciously dob somebody in it. I mean, there's all kinds of rules being made. As I said, it feels as though someone's broken into my house overnight and put a camera inside it. Yeah, I think th- there's a real danger of overkill with, 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 with some of this. I'm, I, 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 there's some science, I'm told, around singing, whether that makes transition more likely. I can't see how, as you say, decibels of itself are not conscious that playing loud music makes you of yourself more likely to, get, to catch coronavirus. Mm. Um, it may be aimed at parties, but let's um, let, let's find a more sensible way of dealing with that, for heaven's sake. I, I just don't, that's exactly the sort of thing that ought to have a proper debate rather than just being dished yeah. out on the plate. But also, it's, it seems like to me rules being made by people who've never had any fun in their lives. And looking at Boris Johnson, well, I'm rather surprised at him. Uh, a guy who is very hail fellow well met, you know, formerly was the life and soul of the party, now wants to kill everything off. Well, it, it is counterintuitive isn't it because yeah. i mean boris is boris is a pretty liberal um open-minded sort of person one of the reasons i supported him uh for, well for, he used for, to be i don't know what's happened to him yeah well I, I there is a danger that you do get a bit captured i think by um people who've been in the public sector all their mm. lives never had to meet a bottom line they may be very dedicated public servants but do have to realize that we're a, you know that's not the way the whole of society lives wants to live or can live their right. lives and you've got to have a broader-minded view of all of this. Yes. And that's what Parliament, we're there for. I mean, one of the things that drives me totally and utterly insane at the moment is the fact that, you know, the tube trains are a little bit busier than they were, yeah. um, but mostly the trains coming in and out of London from places like your constituency, Bromley yeah. and Chislehurst, are still basically empty, and everyone's driving around on the roads, many of which have been made narrower in order for cycle lanes to be put in, particularly around parts of London. I actually got stuck, funnily enough, in Bromley uh, on Friday on my way down to Sussex, and I ended up going back around, uh, around the houses doing some kind of detour, which ended up in an even worse mess. But, but something's going to have to be done, surely, about the roads in this country um, and about the fact that people are being driven away from public transport um, by sort of what I can only describe as muddled thinking. 
I, I couldn't agree more, Mike. I'm sorry about the mess in Bromley. Um, <laughs> I'm not blaming but, you. But... Uh, no, it's uh, funnily enough. I'm, I'm going to be when I finish with doing this interview. I'm going to be up, going up to Westminster on the train, mm. uh, and it will be pretty empty. My wife and I had to go to a hospital appointment for her um, Friday, Friday week, right. and it took us hours. Okay, it, 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 the traffic was the worst I've seen yeah. for, for, for for absolutely months and months and months. Um, you're totally right, and I think we're getting the balance wrong. Yeah, we totally are. So, I mean, with this in mind, um, given Wednesday, tomorrow is the day that the vote actually takes place, are people making sort of representations to the Cabinet and to Boris Johnson, such as yourself, and just saying to them, look, you know, it's not a fight to the death, this. We're just trying to ex- exhibit our, our displeasure at some of the things you're doing. And and will they take any notice, I suppose, is the final question. Well. Well, I hope they will. I know Graham Brady in particular and a number of other colleagues who have been even more in, involved in this. You know, I'm one of the supporters, but Graham has done a great job really driving this. And I know he and a number of key people have been meeting ministers. Um, I hope that they will be responsive. I've found when I, I dealt with um, Boris and his team on the UK internal markets bill, actually, same principle. I wanted Parliament to have a say on a major decision around that. Uh, and they were um, constructive. Uh, there. I hope they will be here too. So I don't want to get to a situation where we have to have that either or choice, a sort of a standoff. Let's find a sensible compromise that we can get within the rules, gives us the reassurance uh, that we will have a proper chance to represent our constituents' concerns right across the piece. Yes. And that ultimately, we won't be throwing democracy and basic liberties out the window needlessly. Well, exactly right. And and also local businesses, people who have built businesses yeah. over years and years and years and years who are finding it impossible to make any money. And you've got to feel absolute sorrow for people who are in those kinds of positions. There's a lot of them. Um, and they are willing um, to, to take a hit if they think they're going to be saving, um, you know, lots and lots of people from getting sick. But there's no great evidence at the moment that lots and lots of people are getting sick. No, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed how responsibly some of the, the pubs locally in my patch, including my own couple of locals I, I, I pop in from time to time, yeah. they've been really good about all social distancing. Um, they're, they're, they're behaving well. Why they should suddenly be clobbered with a lockdown at 10 mm. um, uh, in a suburban area of London makes no particular sense to me at all. No. Um, you know, it's a big, broad brush approach. Um, lots of little firms, shopkeepers, the guy who ran the, the, the news agents at my local station, the people who run the cafe near the station, they've all been prepared to do their bit, but they've got to have some light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And that's what I think a lot of people are looking for now. And we realise it's it's difficult for the government to, uh, to make predictions that can be relied upon, particularly when it comes to people's health. But there does surely need, like I said this last week, there needs to be some kind of roadmap out of here, doesn't there? Yeah, there does. Uh, and that's the bit that we've still not had. I mean, again, I say the Chancellor's done a great job at... The, the immediate stuff of trying to keep the show on the road, but we do need to move to the next step mm. as actually what's the plan, how we move out of this, because this cannot be the new normal. I mean, people talk about you know, we've got to get used to living in this with this and with a new normal. That, that can't be at the price of a restricted way of life. No, it's a very, and also it's a very strange world at the moment. You know, I, got, I got on the tube this morning and, I'm, you know, there's people piling off one train onto an escalator. They're all wearing masks. Nobody's really yeah. talking to one another. It's a very yeah. weird world that we've created. Yeah, we're actually damaging ourselves in the long term, I think, uh, as a uh, as a people. Give me give an example. A friend of mine um, was saying that uh, in their road, it's a nice little quite suburban road. They were just walking along a couple of weeks ago now, three weeks ago, and somebody's little kid came the other way, and they sort of slightly shrank away from this other person on yeah, the pavement. Right. Because they've almost been drummed into them to mm. be scared of going close to people. That's yeah. not natural. 
that's just not natural. No, it's really not. Get away from that and I was encouraged, actually, by Rishi Sunak last week when he said in Parliament, you know, we should not be living in fear. And I thought to myself, <laughs> is this now perhaps a bit of a, a move from the position that Boris Johnson was occupying on Tuesday uh, to, to a new position where we can say and we can use our senior cabinet ministers uh, to say to people, don't be afraid of this. I hope so. And and, and I hope Boris will say, you'll, we'll recognise, go back to his natural instincts mm. of uh, trusting people. Um, trust people's common sense. Don't try and create some massive nanny state. Um, we'll all be responsible. Of course, there are some rules that you have to have. Mm. People don't, you know, we're not saying chuck it all out of the window, um, the, 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 the various rules, but let's be proportional about it. Let's debate it sensibly and let's recognise that there are trade-offs and some of the trade-offs actually have to go in favour of the economy, in favour of theatre, of arts, of sport, uh, of trying to keep the normal way of life going. Otherwise, um, you end up with a society long-term damaged. And I worry, uh, Bob, that there's a lot of people who quite like it the way it is, and I don't know why they do, but some people seem to be quite happy with it. Yeah, um, I do think that that's the case. It's surprising. Um, and I think that's, again, it's a rather dangerous tendency for people to get hold of. There, there, there isn't a free ticket, um, uh, you know, for life in these things. Um, you can't get into this idea that, oh, this, this is wonderful. We've got an almost permanent paid holiday sort mm. of thing. Um, that, that, that's not healthy. Yeah. Um, you can't have a, a world in which you only interact online. Yeah. Uh, in, in which that's sort of, your life around, revolves around the screen like we're doing at yeah, the moment. right. No, I know. It's ridiculous. I mean, I spoke to a guy yesterday up in Scotland who um, uh, is an oil worker from the from the North Sea who's been on furlough basically since March. And yeah. he says he wants to go back to work, but he can't yeah. go back to work because they can't safeguard the helicopters. They can't safeguard the dorm rooms where they sleep on the oil rigs, you know. And he's basically having to think about looking for another job. Yeah, no, it, it, it's having all manner of, I think, silly effects mm. uh, at the end of the day. It's a real risk of overkill with these things. Uh, and it's a problem when you get really eminent scientists, they're no doubt very bright people. Um, but I've also found, like a lot of these things, there can be a bit of tunnel vision in mm. this. And there, uh, is and a, there is a worry sort of globally as well for the uh, Tory party, I think, given the red wall seats that were won yeah. uh, so well back in uh, December of last year. Yeah. A lot of new MPs in the House for the first time from parts of England which have never had Tory representation. That is a big problem if those all disappear at the next election because of Boris Johnson's actions. Absolutely. I mean, I've got some very good friends there amongst the, the, the new group. They're really keen and they're worried because, you know, their people are perhaps suffering even more than we have down in London mm. uh, so, so far. And, you know, they were there on the basis that we were going to try and pull up those areas and we were trying to rebuild the economy yeah. that they neglected and left behind. Well, you can hardly do that if you're squashing what business activity uh, there is. And as has happened recently, done, it seems, without any real notice to the local council leaders and the people who are actually no, quite. trying to run the shop on the show on the ground. Exactly right. So, Bob Neil, thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP for Bromley and Chiselhurst, one of those who will be pressing the government uh, to ensure uh, that these new measures that are brought in, if they are brought in, are not brought in with without due care and attention, without any kind of conversation, without any kind of debate, uh, and just the will of Boris Johnson and the Cabinet, who seem to think uh, that we shouldn't be having any fun whatsoever. Don't play any music. Don't have a drink. Don't go out. If you stay in, don't do anything. Don't talk to anybody. Don't invite anybody round. Don't see anybody. For heaven's sake, this is Britain 2020. This is Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio. The other big story, of course, going on this week is the Brexit conversation. Michael Gove's over in Brussels uh, trying to negotiate with the EU. Word coming out of the EU yesterday uh, was that they appear to be softening their positions somewhat and there might actually be a deal in the offing. Let's talk to Annan Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. Annan, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. You all right? Yeah, very well indeed. Long time uh, no speak. But, uh, you know, the, the Brexit uh, scenario continues to roll on in the background. Um, it's all gone sort of a bit friendly, hasn't it? Uh, well, the tone has shifted a bit, but I'd be careful in saying that the EU has softened their position because I think what's happened, and this is according to a report in The Times and the other newspapers don't seem to be carrying the same sort of thing, but what seems to have happened is the EU are now saying we are happy to start drafting a legal text. Now, that matters because previously the EU has said we're not going to start drafting till all the outstanding issues are resolved. Mm. The problem is that the outstanding issues aren't resolved as yet, so they're going to start drafting, but the same problems over subsidies, over fish, are there. Yes. So as far as their kind of uh, legal um, sort of casework, I suppose, goes, what would be important about that and how would that be drafted and how would it affect whatever comes out of it? Well, I suppose what, what matters here is time in the sense that it takes a long time to draft a trade agreement to put it in the precise legal language they're going to want. And the EU are going to want real precision over this because they're a bit worried about what they see as Boris Johnson reneging on what he signed up to last year. Mm. And to get that written out, to get it past all the member states, because remember, all the 27 have to be happy with every dot and comma, is going to take time. So I think they figured out that if we want to deal, we're going to have to start getting it onto paper now, even if we still haven't resolved the outstanding issues. So is it a a stalling tactic, perhaps, as well? Uh, I think it was a stalling tactic to refuse to draft, in the sense that by saying we're not going to write anything down until everything's agreed, it held everything up. But now it's whatever the opposite of a stalling tactic is, i.e. They're, they're unblocking things and getting things down on paper in the hope that the two sides can compromise on the matters of principle that are holding the talks up. Right. Now, there's a European summit, I think, on October the 15th. So presumably they'd like to see all of this at least put into some kind of draft framework before that. Yeah, I think that deadline, and it's a deadline the Prime Minister has mentioned, is crucial simply because at the end of the day, it is only the people who go to these European summits that have the political authority to make the compromises necessary. That's to say, it's only President Macron who can make the decision that French fishermen are going to have to put up with getting slightly fewer fish. Mm. And one of the problems with the talks today, and it's partly a COVID problem, is because everyone's been so profoundly distracted by the pandemic, there hasn't been the amount of political attention that we'd have expected and that we need to get these talks unlocked. Well, I mean, can you imagine how much of this we would be seeing on the front pages if it wasn't for COVID? <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely. And it's been, I mean, you know, it, it, in a sense, you, would, you might have thought that Brexit not being on the front pages would have freed people from political constraints, but in actual fact, it's denied Brexit the political attention that it needs to get these talks going. Mm, quite. And so what would you expect to happen in the next two or three days then? Uh, well, my guess has always been that there's going to be a deal. The simple reason that both sides would really far prefer to have a deal than to have no deal. The problem is both sides have dug their heels in as a matter of principle, particularly on this issue of state subsidies. And it's very hard to predict which side, if either, is going to give ground. Mm. Uh, and I, I think, in a way, what's going to happen is we'll end up with something that is a little bit of a fudge. Because Boris Johnson, remember, 
has got to sell this deal to his parliamentarians. And many of the same parliamentarians who are worried about him giving in to Brussels are precisely those who are kicking up a fuss over COVID restrictions mm. and so on. So he's wary about annoying that same set of MPs again. Yes. And also, of course, one of the things about the, the, the Brexit that we would prefer anyway in this country, or by far the, the, the majority of people would prefer, um, is a kind of um, a, a not too uh, a dangerous one, a not too and one filled with too much animosity. But inevitably, it will be a fudge because you can't dot every I and cross every T before you get there. No, no, absolutely. But when it comes to animosity, when it comes to the mood music between Brussels and London, I think the crucial difference there is between getting a deal and not getting a deal. Mm. I think whatever kind of deal we get, if the two sides sit down and shake hands on it, then relations with them will be pretty good. We can continue talking to the EU in future months and years. Whereas if the talks break down and both sides head home and start blaming the other for the failure and for the disruption, then I think we're in for a very rocky road in terms of relations with the EU. Lord Frost does seem to be a more capable um, man at this particular business, though, does he not? Well, I'm not sure I'd put it down to Lord Frost. I'm sure he's a very impressive negotiator. I think the fundamental difference is Boris Johnson doesn't have to deal with a hung parliament. And that was the root of Theresa May's problems. If Theresa May had had a majority of 80, I think her life would have been far, far easier. And that, of course, is why she decided to have that election in 2017. Yes. It's one of those imagine if, isn't it? I mean, imagine if she did have a majority of 80. Do you think she'd still be prime minister? Well, God, possibly, yes. I mean, we've got to bear in mind that the Conservative Party is quite divided. Mm. But, of course, that parliamentary Conservative Party, which contained the likes of David Livington, David Gork, a lot of those who subsequently... Uh, left Parliament or were thrown out of the party or both, Mm. was a very different Conservative Party to this one. Boris Johnson not only has a majority, but he has Conservative MPs, all of whom have essentially taken the Brexit pledge. Mm. And whilst they might disagree with him on Covid or on a number of other things, I think it's very unlikely any of them are going to put up much of a fight on Brexit, unless he seemed to have given in to the EU too much, in which that... You remember the ERG? I do. Well, I suppose the, uh, the, the other thing about politicians, and particularly inside the Conservative Party, is that if they smell um, a bit of weakness, they might go in for the kill um, because they're not happy with the way he's handling coronavirus. I mean, I personally think that the one thing that Boris has handled well is Brexit so far. But if it looks like he's starting to weaken and it's looking like he's going to start costing the Tories not only popularity but, but a few seats in the next election, you know, they might suddenly look at the way he's dealing with Brexit and go, actually, we don't really like what you're doing. Yeah, possibly. My sense at the moment is, in terms of the election's a long way away, mm. but it does strike me that the fundamental issue, insofar as we can predict it at all for the next election, is not going to be Brexit. It's going to be the handling of the pandemic, and yeah. particularly, and this is yet to come, a handling of the economic impact of lockdown, which we're going to see over the next six months. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Well, we should watch this space, Alan. Thanks very much indeed. Good to talk to you. Alan Menon, Director of the UK in a Change Europe. Hard to imagine, really, that Brexit is still going on in the background. But every now and again, you just have to remind yourself that, yes, it is. Michael Gove over in Brussels. There's talk of a deal. Uh, there's talk of progress being made steadily uh, without being, being particularly quick. Uh, and there's talk of them sort of gently moving towards some kind of um, framework of legality, as you just heard. 
third Anne and say. Uh, we'll take your calls on that as well. 0344 1000 is the number. Uh, I'm getting some breaking news here from Northern Ireland. Arlene Foster has announced an 11pm curfew for the hospitality sector in Northern Ireland. We've got Andy Burnham now currently in Manchester calling for a 9pm one. We've got 10pm. Why doesn't somebody just go, let's have a, I don't know, let's have a curfew at, uh, let's see, what, 1041? How about that? Oh, look, it's 1041. Amazing. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Coming up a little bit later on, of course, we'll be going over to the White House in the US of A because tonight is the first Donald Trump-Joe Biden um, debate, which is going to be live televised around two o'clock in the morning. Uh, We'll be talking about it, of course, first thing on the show tomorrow uh, with Nigel Farage, who's going to be watching it for us. Lots, lots more uh, for us to do here today, though. Lots more of your calls to take as well. But let's introduce um, David Curtin to the Independent Republic. David, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. Good to be with you, Mike. Yeah, thanks very much indeed for joining us. I've sort of been meaning to get you on for a while. It suddenly kind of finally managed to get around to it because you're quite a figure um, for the right in this country now. You were with UKIP some some time ago. You've now decided uh, to form the Heritage Party, which we'll talk about in a minute. But let me get your views, first of all, on, on what this government is doing and how this lockdown is affecting businesses in London. You're a London Assembly member. You must talk to a lot of business people. What's What's your view? Uh, it's terrible and it's appalling and it's devastating to civil liberties and it's devastating to businesses. It's devastating to ordinary people who are like taxi drivers and carers who, um, you know, they can't get around. And, um, you know, people just can't do what they should be allowed to do. So everything that's been happening is completely disproportionate, uh, as Desmond Swain said yesterday in the House of Commons, mm. to the uh, severity of this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, which we know is no more worse 
worse than in a bad flu season. When it started, I was really worried. I thought, you know, this could be something that's like the Black Death or or Ebola or something, but it's not. It's clearly not now we've got data. Well, certainly, I think we were all very much more concerned back in March than, than, than we are now. You know, and for my money, there's a great growing um, sense in the country that the, 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 the measures are disproportionate, that we shouldn't be doing what we're now doing. And it's not a second wave. And, and we don't really see the reason why we're getting these warnings again like we got in March. We can't have the NHS overrun. I'm, I'm told that the hospital has never been quieter. Yeah, I, I've heard that as well from people I know working in the NHS. And, um, you know, the, the first lockdown, uh, as, as they call it, didn't actually do anything different to uh, Sweden, which didn't have a lockdown. And now they're in a far better position than us. I mean, in fact, if you look at the, the, the deaths per million people, I mean, it's horrible to think like that, but they're actually uh, have a lower death rate per capita than we do. And they didn't do lockdown. So locking down the first time is now proven to be, uh, you know, have no real effect and no need. So the idea that we're going to do this a second time, uh, I think, is egregious and, and it's going to cause untold damage unnecessarily. And I, I think you know, some people are saving face. Um, some people, you know, they're, they're scared of being called names and, and uh, going outside of the, you know, accepted thing that they can say, you know, if they're, if they're in politics. But I think, you know, the MPs really need to stand up, be brave, be courageous and do the right thing. Look at the data and see we don't need this because uh, the cure is going to be far, far worse mm. than the disease. Absolutely right. And uh, your friend of mine, Mr. Sadiq Khan, has not exactly played a blinder throughout this either. He's a guy who uh, refuses constantly to come on this show, even uh, when a Metropolitan Police officer uh, is shot dead inside a, a Metropolitan Police station. He even refused to come on and talk to us then. I mean, his policies have been all over the place for London, haven't they? And they have. I mean, at the very beginning, on the 3rd of March, he said, look, there's, you're not going to get it if you go on a tube uh, or or on a bus. Right. Uh, and then he completely changed around. And, and now he's been trying to push ahead of the government. He's calling for masks inside, masks outside. Now he wants a, a lockdown uh, no, he, you know, and, and close everything down. I mean, it's, it's astounding that the mayor of London wants to shut London down. I mean, London is being destroyed. London is being eaten out from the inside, central London in particular, is dead. We need to open up everything normally. We need to get rid of this ridiculous curfew, which isn't having uh, any effect. I mean, as, as if uh, COVID is go is going to let you uh, go between nine and 10, and then after 10 o'clock is going to get you. I mean, this is a really ridiculous idea. So we need to open up the pubs, open up the restaurants, open up the cafes, and also more than that, theatres and music venues, yeah. the whole nighttime economy is, is what makes London thrive uh, in, in the evening and, and get people back into the offices in the daytime so right. that everyone who, who uh, gets trade from office workers uh, can carry on doing their business. Well, it's exactly. astounding the mayor of London doesn't want that. Well, it is extraordinary, isn't it? And and the other thing that I find amazing this morning to wake up to feel, uh, to hear the news that, you know, you're not allowed to now play music over 85 decibels. I mean, I don't even know, for example, if I'm sitting in my car in a traffic jam, of which there are many, all over this city, um, and I've got my window open, and I'm, bla you know, blasting out, you know, um, um, a version of "We Are the Champions" by Queen or something. Am I going to get arrested? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the police have got far too much more, more important things to do. I mean, the, the police should be focused on catching real criminals. They've got to catch murderers and, and arsonists and vandals and thugs. That's what the police should be doing. They shouldn't be going after ordinary people for mm. doing normal things like meeting their friends yeah. or, or having people into their house or showing their face on a train. That's not what the police should be doing. That's trivial. And that, those kind of things should not be against the law. And you know, I think this is now just getting utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Now, I, I think you were at the uh, the march in Trafalgar Square at the weekend. What did you make of the police's behaviour there? Because I get sort of counter uh, and different stories of what happened there. You know, there's a video currently on the rack doing the rounds that where that lady who was pushed over in that famous video that everybody's now seen uh, was in fact not who she was pretending to be. I don't know if that's true. You know, there's no doubt, though, that the police were sort of steaming in to what appeared to be a relatively peaceful protest for the most part yeah i mean i was there uh, on saturday uh in, in the crowds uh, and i was actually there the week before on the stage and, and both times I, I wouldn't have believed this if i hadn't have seen it with my own eyes mm. but you know last saturday the 26th they were even more brutal than on the, the 19th and yeah uh, the organizers said they'd done a risk assessment they even held a minute silence um for for the policeman who who was shot in um, in croydon yeah. and everyone joined in as in a mark of respect and yet just about three o'clock you had two columns of riot police coming in from both sides of the top of trafalgar square and they weren't coming in to politely ask you know can you close this down they were charging in hitting people and yeah, the, the, the woman there, the, I, I think she might not have been exactly who um, she said she was and found out that later. But, you know, later on up in uh, Speaker's Corner, some people went up there and there was this respected German doctor, Heiko Schoening, you know, who, who spoke on the stage in mm -hmm. Berlin. Uh, on the 10th, you know, with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's right. a respected doctor. And he was arrested and bundled into a van and held in Wandsworth Police Station for 22 hours, just for saying, you know, I don't think that this is worse than a flu season, which is the truth. Yeah. You know, so I and think well, it's that, also an opinion, which I, as far as I know, is not illegal to have, is it? Well, it's not, but it seems that you're going to get harassed uh, by the police anyway. And this is shameful and it's chilling. Uh, what's being done to free speech mm. in this country. I mean, I this is the sort of thing you, you, you imagine would have happened, you know, in, in the beginnings of, of Lenin's Bolshevik revolution, yeah. uh, not something that should be happening in London, in Trafalgar Square or in Speaker's Corner. And, you know, we've got to turn back from this. You know, I've been speaking about this for, for months now from the beginning, and I'm glad that other people are now finding the courage to speak out about this because we have an accelerating tyranny. You know, um, it's not yet to the point where you can't say uh, what you want to say, but you know, the government is now saying you can't assemble with who you want to assemble with. Mm. And, uh, you know, how long is it before they actually start cracking down on what you say? Because this is what's happening in Victoria, in Australia. They yeah. start to say to do that to clamp down and and threaten people with arrest and fines just for saying the wrong thing so you know what happens in one place a few weeks or a few months later it, it gets rolled out in other mm. places as well yeah. we all have to speak up now it again. really it really does seem important because you know whatever your view is you're certainly entitled to uh, to, to mm. examine it uh, you're certainly entitled to discuss it i mean you and i might have a disagreement about something but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about it and the bottom line for me is it doesn't appear to be anything other than a sign that it's going to get worse from this government than better yeah, it uh, it looks like it, and you know who can believe this would happen under a conservative government? Well, you know, yeah. 
I, when I was younger, you know, as a student before UKIP existed, um, I was in the Conservative Party. I joined as a student, um, you know, because I, I believe in free market economics. I believe in freedom uh, and I also believe in traditional family values, conservative family values. And the Conservative Party doesn't represent any of that mm. anymore. I right. mean, they certainly don't represent traditional family values. They certainly are now clamping down on freedom and civil liberties in a way which you might expect from the far left. Um, and, uh, you know, they are being incredibly financially irresponsible as well. I mean, at the beginning of the year, I would say they're wasting money on HS2, on overseas development, on uh, so-called green energy, which doesn't provide much energy at all, um, and uh, also on the European Union and so on. But now the huge amounts of money that they've wasted and spent on the coronavirus, on, on track and trace and on supporting people who, you know, through their policies now don't have a job to go to. Uh, is incredibly irresponsible. I mean, you know, they actually make to, they make Tony Blair look relatively responsible, which is you know quite incredible. So well, yeah, it is, it is. I mean, here's the funny thing. You know, people who want to work and people who have businesses like Craig, who called us up in the first hour. I don't know if you heard him say. You know, he just wants to get, be able to operate his business, which is an events business, but he's being stopped from operating it by government policy, and he doesn't want to be given. He doesn't get any money from the government anyway, aside from universal credit. But you know. The government ought to let people make their own living um, because there's not a reason for them to stop it. And to, and to then not sub subsidise them and let them basically go to the wall is, is, is criminal in my view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this shouldn't be happening. It, the, the, the point, any government should support people to, to do what they want to do, to provide the framework of freedom in the economy so people can get on and they can make their own living. I mean, what kind of country do they want? They're creating a country now where everybody is dependent on the state. I mean, mm. this is like a communist dream. Um, they're doing the exact opposite of what a conservative government should be doing, which is allowing freedom. And then people can get off, um, you know, their chairs get out to work and make their own living and make their own way and stand on their own two feet uh, and, and they're doing exactly the opposite of this again and yeah it's criminal we need to get people back to work and we need to once again allow people the freedom to do what they want to do and make their own living yeah let's talk about the heritage party when did you decide to kind of uh, uh, invent your own party i mean i can tell um, that you would normally be say a traditionalist a conservative uh, with a small c um but what tell us about the heritage party um, it stands for liberty and free speech as you say defending our heritage traditional family values low immigration national sovereignty financial responsibility all sounds good um, but it mm. depends on the detail doesn't it really yeah, I mean, you can look at our website, heritageparty.org, and the manifesto is there, and it's laid out in more detail. And it's really a manifesto of values and principles. So you've got those those headlines, as you say, and uh, there, there's more detail under them. But I mean, these are things that, you know, are traditional conservative values that I said earlier, the Conservative Party is not standing for. And, you know, I, I saw this, you know, a while ago. And for the, for the last few years, I've been in politics, you know, every election, you see uh, the Conservative Conservative Party stand up and they, they, they talk as though they are uh, true conservatives and then they get into power and then they do the opposite of what they said and they just carry on, you know, in the sort of Blairite 
um, tradition. You know, Cameron was like that, Theresa May carried that on, and now Boris Johnson is, is no better. I mean, we have, as I say, financial irresponsibility, we have mass immigration, they, they passed a law recently to make um, no-fault divorce come in, which is going to be devastating to families and children, uh, and so on. And, and so we need a real conservative party with real conservative values and principles. So I've been working on this, uh, you know, for the last three or four months, so put an application into it the Electoral Commission. Uh, they haven't approved us yet, but I'm hoping to get approval from them uh, very soon. So then we can open up for membership. And then, um, you know, the aim is to stand in elections in 2021. And you know, I'll be standing uh, for the London mayoral uh, elections. I, I announced that, uh, you know, as an independent in, in January, but I'll be standing for the Heritage Party, providing we get approval. Right. And then, you know, we'll put together a list for the London Assembly. And we'll also stand in some local elections as well, because it in local boroughs and districts and counties, you have um, great concern about the, the devastation being done to the green belt and the countryside with uh, masses of new housing developments being built, which uh, completely change the character of our towns and cities and villages. And people just don't want that. They don't want mass immigration, which causes a housing crisis, which then causes the need to build um, millions and millions of extra homes uh, in the countryside and, uh, you know, devastating and changing the character of what was there before that's not conserving things and and i think you know people around the country in local area local areas want uh, a party that will conserve the natural environment as well as the the culture and the society so that's what we're about and uh, that's what we'll be uh, saying more of as we actually then um, announce and roll out our policies okay. for london and for the local um areas and you call yourself a christian um david so <laughs> tell us about your traditional family values what does that mean to you yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very open about that. I think the definition of marriage is a man and a woman. I, I don't agree with the, the redefinition of marriage that happened in 2013. I know some people won't agree with me on that, but uh, there isn't a party now that actually stands for that. You've got. I don't, think there's, I don't think there's any churches that stand for it either, to be honest. <laughs> Which is, you know, this again is, is something that is, uh, you know, a, a progressive, the progressive agenda has got into the churches, and you have a lot of the established churches. Uh, now moving away from Christian orthodoxy, but it's not just Christian; it's, it's Jewish, Muslim, uh, Sikh, Hindus, and, and social conservatives who, who perhaps are not religious. We, you know, would would agree with that and don't uh, agree with the redefinition of marriage because if you redefine it once, you can redefine it again and again, uh, and and you know the whole sort of fabric of society will then will then change. So we're, we're very clear: uh, we, this is what we think is the definition of, of marriage, and we also, you know, we want. Um, uh, to but how does that manifest itself though in your in your eyes of of, of how you would see a, a country under your leadership because you talk about liberty and free speech but you don't seem to want to give liberty and free speech to everyone well, liberty and free free speech, I mean, you don't have to agree with people. If, you know, I say you have the right to say what you want to say, but we're not necessarily going to agree with everything that everyone says. And no, I think sure. The, no, sure. But if you say, for example, you only recognise marriage between a man and a woman, that means you don't recognise marriage between a man and a man or a woman mm -hmm. and a woman. So where does that leave them legally? 
Um, well, the, the, this, is a, this is a difficult question um, because it's actually been enacted in, in 2013. But I think if we did um, get, come to the point where we could make a new law on this, we would redefine it again as uh, marriage being between uh, a man and a woman. And then going forward, I think we'd have to say, you know, this is the definition of marriage. People who have already sort of done that, you know, in the sort of interim period, I think, you know, that the law shouldn't be changed retrospectively. But we'd have to look at that. But I mean, this is our, our general position. We want to make sure the marriages are strengthened and that that's it you know because uh, in, in Christian orthodoxy and tradition um, you know the, pu the purpose of marriage is for uh, making a stable family so you can have children and bring up your children and that I think that's something that's quite got quite lost from um, society as a concept so that's something that I think society has accepted <laughs> that there are many types of families that you can be brought up in which can be just as good uh, as, as any other and, and quite frankly it would be I would say backward step would it not to suggest that only men and women who quite often are terrible parents are the ones that raise children? Um, no, I don't think it would at all. I mean, as I say, I don't agree with the redefinition of marriage. And I think if you do look at the the bell curve of success um, for different types of families, it, it is sort of known and shown by by uh, lots of lots of research that children who come from stable married families with a mother and a father do better uh, in education. They do better you know, in, in terms of employment, have lower crime, lower depression and so on. Now, of course, there will be exceptions within that. But you have the, the but there's an awful lot of marriages that end in divorce. There's an awful lot of parents that end up as single parents bringing up kids. Some of mm. them do very well. Some of them don't. You know, it depends. You can take your choice on that. But let's move on to something else, because at the end of the day, um, what we need to see, David, in this in this country, really, um, is a return to uh, normality. The best way we can find that to do. I mean, what can, conversations can you have, say, for example, with Sadiq Khan about improving the lot of Londoners, because one of the things that drives me absolutely insane at the moment is his kind of flip-flopping about on public transport. Do we use it? Do we not use it? The roads are an absolute mess. The cycle lanes are a joke. Um, you know, the whole city is, is, despite the fact that it's empty, seems to be at a standstill. It is. And, you know, I'm standing in the election because that that's a, a big, big issue for London, because, you know, all the other parties, whether it's, you know, the Tory party with Grant Shapps at the top and Sadiq Khan and the boroughs are all pushing this agenda where they're blocking roads off with low traffic neighbourhoods and putting in pop up cycle lanes over there, which narrow the roads, putting barriers at the curbside, which is making life absolutely appalling for, for vehicles. I mean, it's almost like they are against all vehicles or all cars. But, yeah. you know, it's not just cars that are on the road. There's emergency vehicles, taxis, buses, delivery vehicles, service vehicles. They all need to get through. And, and this is causing huge congestion, huge problems for businesses, huge problems for people who want to get around. So I think I'm the only mayoral candidate who's saying I'll get rid of all of these pop up cycle lanes and we'll actually put space on the roads back for vehicles yeah. you know rather than having half the roads taken up for two percent of journeys taken by cycles who don't you know actually use them uh for most of the day it's a madness to do that and we'll reverse it it is absolutely right well listen david i'm sure we'll talk again thank you very much for taking the time to spend with us david Curtin, uh, who is of course leader of the new heritage party yet to be okayed by the electoral commission uh, but when it is and if it is he will be standing for mayor of london next year uh, against sadiq Khan, a man uh, who, despite numerous attempts for us to get him on this show, has refused. So pretty soon, I think what we'll do is invite everybody from the London Assembly on at one time or another so that everyone who works with Sadiq Khan will have been in the Independent Republic and he'll be the only one that's too frightened for some reason. This is Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio. We've got to go across live to the United States of America to Sebastian Gorka, to be precise, strategist to President Trump, host of America First, the podcast, host of a wonderful radio show which I appear on from time to time when he grants me permission. Um, Dr. Gorka, a very good morning and welcome to you. <laughs> Greetings, Generalissimo Graham. Great to be back. Listen, fantastic news that we've got the first debate tonight. I think we've all been waiting for this moment. It will be a bit weird because there isn't an audience uh, that President Trump can play to. But I mean, after his little aside about Prince Harry uh, earlier on uh, this week, I think we all agree uh, that he could be uh, up for some very funny asides to Mr. Biden. It's it's going to be a bloodbath. You know it. We, we have the vice president, the former vice president, who has been campaigning from his basement for months, uh, going up against the individual, my boss, Donald Trump, who wiped the floor with 16 other fake conservative candidates in 2016 and then beat Hillary Clinton, who, Mike, get, get a load of this, uh, four years ago, Hillary Clinton spent $1.4 billion on becoming president. The night of the election, the mainstream media everywhere said she's got it, 93% chance of winning. The New York Times, the Huffington Post, and he crushed her. So the idea that this old geriatric senile man is going to go up against Donald Trump and, and impress the world is a pipe dream. So I'll be watching it, and so will tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people across the world. Oh, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. We've got Nigel Farage coming on tomorrow morning after the event because he's watching it live. Um, He's a fantastic uh, uh, fan of Donald Trump. In fact, he's written a piece today in the Daily Telegraph talking about how Donald Trump is a man that he's got to know uh, over the last four years, and, and he's a great man, and people misunderstand him. You know, those who don't like him will never like him, but those who do like him uh, will vote for him. No, look, this is, it's, 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 it's connected to what Nigel did. So whether it's Brexit, whether it's the Trump phenomena, what people want is authenticity. Yeah. They want individuals who aren't politicians. It's remarkable that this guy won election as the most powerful man in the world, became the president the first time he ran for any political office. And that's the nature of modern politics. We've had enough of, of career politicians like Biden, who've been around for decades and decades and decades, and just just lined their pockets or their family's pockets with filthy lucre, whether it's his drug addict son, Hunter Biden, getting $1.4 billion with a B, $1.4 billion deals from the Chinese Communist National Bank of China, whether it's his brother, Frank, who never had any background in construction or building, who one day just magically gets millions of dollars from the government to build houses in Iraq when his brother is vice president. The average the, the average Joe has had enough, and they still. And I think that the, the silent majority that propelled him to the White, White House has only expanded in the last four yes. years, Mike. And also, who knew that the Bidens could be so well-versed in oil uh, refineries and oil exploration in Ukraine? I mean, what an extraordinary knowledge to have. It's quite stunning that Hunter <laughs> Biden, who had never, ever had any background in energy, or Central Europe, or Eastern Europe, or China, or investment, gets a a, a sweetheart deal from Burisma, the most corrupt energy company in the Ukraine, that netted him. Just hang on a second. If you guys don't believe it, look it up on the internet. $83,000 a month. Not a year, a month. 
when his daddy was not only vice president, but was also the quote-unquote point person for U.S.-Ukrainian relations. It, it just, it's, it stinks yeah. to high heaven. And now, now his daddy wants to be president. Ah, it really is incredible how this system in America works, where you can be a senator and you can get very wealthy uh, on the public purse and on, the, on the, the, the political system in the U.S. of A. Similarly with Biden, and President Trump has pointed this out many times, this is a guy uh, who has taken money from lobbying groups, from uh, special interest groups, uh, and has then gone back to Washington and sold them all down the river. Yeah, so this is the guy, although he, he left there when he was a child, who sells himself as the kid from Scranton, mm. this, this hard scrabble working class part of Pennsylvania that's full of coal miners. He, he, he appeals to the, you know, the, the people that he grew up with as he is selling them down the river, going on record saying, not only am I going to stop fracking, but we have to get rid of all fossil fuels, literally killing their jobs. And then at the same time saying, China, China's great. They're not a competitor. We should outsource more of their jobs, which is exactly why we elected Donald Trump in 2016, mm. because of the tens of thousands of Americans, the, 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 what Donald Trump calls the forgotten men and women who had been crushed by the outsourcing of American economy to by, by, by the elite. So this is, you know, this this man is a cipher. He's an empty shell. And tonight's debate with Donald Trump, it's going to be a sight to see, Mike. I'm assuming uh, Donald Trump will also go down the law and order route because we've seen yes. many of these democratic run cities become battle zones run by militia groups who are carrying the kind of weaponry that you only see uh, in my in my time anyway, uh, in sort of war movies, you know, they're walking around with with automatic machine guns, incredible amount of guns. And I know that you're an expert in guns. I see that you've got a, a mug with with guns on it, in fact. And, and there's some, I, I but, do. But, I'm having my typhoon, my typhoon <laughs> for breakfast. There it is. Um, yeah. So, 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 I mean, but, you know, it's, it's incredibly lawless in parts of America, which are controlled by the Democrats. And Biden has not been good at kind of uh, denouncing all that. It, we have had violence on the streets of America now for more than three months. It took until last week for sleepy, creepy Biden to say it's a bad thing. Mm. Why? Because all of these states, all of these cities where the violence is occurring are run by his buddies. Whether it's Seattle, whether it's Portland, whether it's the streets of Baltimore, these are Democrat strongholds. And in the last three and a half months, the, the figures are shocking. We've had more than 30 people murdered in these riots. We've had more than a dozen of them black individuals. So people are chanting during the riots, no justice, no peace, black lives matter. And then a 77-year-old black retired police captain is gunned down in front of the store of his buddy who he's protecting from the rioters. Nobody cares about David Dawn. Mm. And then his, his, his widow gives that incredible speech at the RNC convention two weeks ago where she says enough is enough. You know, my, my husband's life mattered as well and he was black. And the latest figures from the insurance industry, Mike, three billion dollars worth of damage the arson the rioting the looting and and people were obsessed about you know the the, the chinese virus and corona and getting america back to work but i think it's going to be like nixon in the 70s i think uh, in in 34 days time this election is going to be about law and order yeah and what will biden come at president trump with no doubt he'll be quoting the new york times article about income tax <laughs> 
uh, which I don't think many people uh, give a stuff about. I mean, what will he come at him with? He'll, he'll come at him with, with, with the, the lies, the propaganda, the Charlottesville, the, 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 the fine good people on both sides with the president did not say about uh, the, the neo-Nazis who he condemned roundly when that, that protest occurred. He'll, he'll come back with the fake news industrial complex. He'll, he'll probably go after the president's uh, finances, which is you know really quite, quite interesting because if you read the fifth, I printed it out for my show yesterday. The New York Times hit on the president, if you print it out, is 54 pages long, a <laughs> newspaper article. Wow. 50, that, this is how desperate they are. And it's exactly the same story that was published uh, in 2016 that says the president, yes, because he had two tough years, didn't pay a lot of taxes. But the prior three years, he, <laughs> the president of the United States paid $74 million worth of taxes. Mm. Would you like to be that successful, Mike, that you end up paying the inland revenue $70 million in taxes? I think if I had that kind of money to pay the inland <laughs> revenue, I'd, I'd, I'd go and buy my own private island, I think, and I wouldn't have to pay them anything. Because people forget, of course, that, you know, and Biden's one of these people because he's only ever had free money. He's only ever had public money. He's only ever right. managed to organise deals for himself and his family because of his position as a public officer in the public sector. They don't understand business. They don't understand people like Trump. No, the, the, the question isn't how a billionaire like the president loses money once he becomes a politician. It's how a politician who's only ever suckled at the teat of the taxpayer mm. becomes a multi, multi, multi millionaire. <laughs> yes. That's the question. I mean, it's, it's the reverse math. The president of the United States, maybe your listeners don't know this or your viewers, since he became president, a lot of his businesses are suffering because he's recused himself from, from involvement there. Right. He's handed them over to the kids. Every quarter, we have a little ceremony here at the White House, and the president officially donates his government paycheck as president back to the U.S. taxpayer because he says, I'm not taking a dime. I mean, can, you, can you imagine a politician saying, I'm not going to live off the, the, the taxpayer? That's what he's been doing for four years. Right, exactly right. Well, I'm glad you told me that because I don't think anybody knows that, certainly on this side of the pond. The other great one, of course, at the moment is, uh, as you quite rightly pointed out, um, you know, Sleepy Joe. Um, he's not all there. Um, I wonder if he will know where he is when he walks out onto that stage uh, later on tonight. But, I mean, uh, the president's asking whether he should take a drug test or not. <laughs> we, we are fully, fully behind the president as to uh, his suggestion that there should be a drug test for both of the speakers tonight. Think about this. We, we had the events here, of uh, the, the Breonna Taylor case mm. last week in, in Kentucky, where, where a woman was killed when a, a warrant was being, uh, was being executed against her, her former drug dealing uh, uh, um, boyfriend. Mm. And she got killed. Afterwards, massive riots across Kentucky. It's it became the, the front page issue. Joe Biden's campaign, the day of the decision about the prosecution of the police, at 9.20 a.m., they call it putting a lid, when they close the campaign for the day and their candidate isn't going to talk to the press. Joe Biden's campaign put a lid 
on that day at 9.20 in the morning. You've never seen anything like it. The president has done, what, six rallies in the last mm. week across the nation, and Joe Biden's getting his cup of Horlicks and getting back to bed at 9 a.m. Right. It's incredible. I was going to say, is he making that same mistake that Hillary Clinton made when she didn't visit a couple of the big swing states because she thought she was going to nail them anyway? Ohio, I think, was one of them. Um, has Biden also done that, or is he trying to, that to make sure he doesn't make those mistakes? He has no ground game. The, the Trump campaign has knocked on more than two million doors in the last few months. The Democrat campaign has done no physical outreach. He has these weird artificial press events with six people in the room. They, if you look at the photographs, they're, they're each, each reporter is standing in a painted circle to maintain social distancing. It's truly something out of Aldous Huxley. It's very, mm. very weird. And the other thing is, and this is why tonight will be very interesting, Every single event that he's held in the last few weeks ended before 6 p.m. You couldn't see Joe Biden do an event in the evening, which is also associated with certain issues of cognitive, cognitive capacity. Mm. So when we have a live debate tonight starting at 9 p.m., who, who knows what's who knows what gas he's going to make, like <laughs> confusing his, his sister with his wife, thinking that Super Tuesday is on Thursday. It, it, it might be it might be a bit like Monty Python. You never know. It might be fun. It could be. Listen, I think you'll get great ratings for it. Whoever is putting oh, yes. it on. Uh, everyone wants to see this because it's what we've been waiting for all this time, because it's very clear uh, that Biden from his own conference from, from the Democratic National Convention, you know, was all over the place then, you know, and I, and I said at the time and I know that some people were looking at me slightly sideways that his voice didn't sound right he sounded like uh, it was you know his speech had been somehow you know um, voiced by by a younger joe biden you know that kind of thin voice and i think i said this on your show had kind of disappeared and so he's a very odd character if you want if you have any doubt that the most powerful nation in the world is having an election campaign between one of the most successful presidents in modern history and an old, old, wizened man with cognitive issues who's been in politics for 47 years. Just do one thing, dear listeners. Go online and go to YouTube and search a, a video of Vice President or Senator Biden giving a speech five years ago or 10 years ago. And then watch a speech from today. There is no question. It's like watching a, a man and then his, his old granddad in the nursing home. Mm. This man, seriously, you know, we have one of the most um, sober uh, journalists in America today. He's called Britt Hume. Mm. He's with Fox. He's been around doing journalism for more than 40 years. On a recent podcast interview with The Federalist, he said, yeah. Joe Biden has senility. He has dementia. It's not a question. And we have to remember, this is an individual who wants to control the United States nuclear weapons. The mm. Democrat Party is running a guy who is clearly senile, who would be in control of the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world. So it's not just his corruption, it's also his health, Mike, yeah. that disqualifies him from president. And if I was President Trump, the first question would be uh, to Joe Biden, can you please outline all of the things that you have achieved in your 45 <laughs> years as a politician in Washington, D.C.? I think it would be a very short answer. 
Well, well, no, it'd be a very long answer. I got 1.5 billion for my son. I got tens of millions for my brother. I mean, it, it would be about graft for his family, Mike. I yeah. mean, we'd be there all night. Right, absolutely. But incredible stuff. It's going to be fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Sebastian Gorka, thank you uh, as ever for joining us on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, strategist to President Trump. Uh, don't miss it tonight. It's going to be on. You are have to stay up late. Uh, we'll be covering it all in the morning uh, with Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit Party. It's going to be quite a remarkable event. The first proper political uh, presidential debate between President Trump and Joe Biden. It's in the early hours of this morning. Uh, we'll be bringing it to you, I'm sure, here uh, on Talk Radio. But tune in tomorrow morning uh, for the proper analysis of it all, as it happens, of course, as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. One thing that you can rely on, of course, is here at the Independent Republic. Every day after the 12.30 news, we have our homeschooling segment. And today, I'm delighted to say, uh, behind me, you can see it, St Paul's Cathedral uh, is the very subject that we are talking about with Donna McDowell, Head of Schools and Family Learning at St Paul's Cathedral. I think one of probably the most magnificent churches in the entire world. Donna, a very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Now, I've got some breaking news for you. We're not really breaking news, but we were talking about this earlier on and, and, you know, interesting facts about St. Paul's Cathedral. One interesting fact is when I was a little boy, uh, you used to be able to climb all the way to the top of it, right? And my dad took me to the very top of St. Paul's Cathedral. So my um, head has actually been in that little globe underneath the cross, um, which is peppered with little holes that you can see all over London. So I've got a real kind of a link and, and love for the place. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's and that's rare. In fact, we can still climb up to the Golden Gallery. Yes. Um, although not at the moment. At the moment, we can only go as far as the Stone Gallery, but it still gives you an amazing view out over all of London. Yes. And it's such a beautiful uh, dome inside. I mean, can you still go to the Whispering Gallery, which is another fabulous part of it? So theoretically, but unfortunately, at the moment that's closed for some renovations and maintenance. Right. So at the moment, it's just the Stone Gallery. But um, but hopefully when all of that gets finished, then all three galleries will be open again. Mm. And I mean, it's one of those buildings that looks magnificent from whichever angle you look at it from. And it looks so different, doesn't it, from every angle. So if you're looking up to the Ludgate Hill towards the front, you don't really see the dome, but you see that magnificent sort of pillared structure in the steps. Absolutely. It's uh, it's one of those buildings that I think, so everyone connects the dome with St Paul's, but there, it also hides all of these other really incredible stories. You were just um, mentioning re- resilience and how we need resilience right mm. now. And I think one of the things we need as well are stories of hope. And I, I think that the, the Dome of St. Paul's is a wonderful symbol of resilience and hope. Um, one of the pictures you, uh, you were showing there was the, where the view that you see from the Millennium Bridge. And a lot of people might not have noticed this, but if you're crossing from the bridge and you're looking at the cathedral from the south side, Mm. if you look up onto the south portico, you can see a phoenix that's been carved into the stone. And there's an incredible story around that, which is when Christopher Wren was starting the build of the cathedral, he supposedly asked for somebody to go and find him a stone that was going to be the keystone, the first stone that he'd use. Mm. And of course, the cathedral was being built out of the rubble of the previous cathedral that had been destroyed in the Great Fire of London. Mm. And so a stonemason brought him a stone back and it was a piece from a um, from the graveyard. And the stone had the word resurgam written on it. 
And that's a Latin word that means I will rise again. Mm. So kind of a typical thing that you might have found on a gravestone. But he took this as a really incredible sign that this cathedral would be a symbol of rising again and of rebirth. And that's why he then had the phoenix carved into that, because, of course, it's a bird that rises up from the ashes and is born again. Right. And when he was designing that cathedral, I mean, it was not the sort of thing that you saw every day, was it? I mean, his design was was quite revolutionary. It absolutely was. It um, it was very different to the kinds of things that that you would have seen here at the time, although it was quite similar to some of the designs that were happening on the continent. And that's actually where his influence came from, why he chose the dome. But there was a lot of um, that uh, a lot of people were arguing with him about that design. They didn't want the dome because this was going to be the first Protestant cathedral that was built. Mm. It had become a Protestant cathedral, um, obviously prior to that, but it had been built as a Catholic cathedral. And they uh, people felt that the dome was too papish or too Catholic. And so they weren't very keen. So he adjusted his designs and made a design uh, that still had a sort of a dome structure, but was also had uh, something that looked a little bit like a, a spire or a mm. steeple. But he had written into his contract that he could make changes as he went along. And so when the scaffolding came off 35 years later, um, et voila, the dome was there and everyone loved it. Yes. So he got what he wanted in the end. And also that famous picture um, of uh, during the Blitz when when you've got like London in flames, literally in flames and smoke everywhere. And yet there's that dome almost, you know, defiantly standing there. Absolutely. And that's a story and a picture that a lot of people are familiar with. Mm. And um But what a lot of people maybe don't know is that three months before that, that happened in December 1940, when there was uh, the 29th of December, um, a huge huge amount of bombs um, were dropped onto the city of London and a lot of it was in flames and St Paul's survived. But three months prior to that, there had been um, a bomb that had been dropped and it landed right outside the the front doors of St Paul's on Mm. the West End. And it was a um, 4,400 pound bomb and it was buried 30 feet into the ground. And another wonderful story of resilience is that it took three men, it took six men, apologies, three days to dig that bomb mm. out. And they, it could have exploded at any time. And the bravery of those men is phenomenal. They dug it out, put it on a, on a lorry, drove it to Hackney Marshes where they detonated it and it created a 100 foot wide crater. <laughs> So had it exploded, St. Paul's may not have survived. No. It's incredible, isn't it, when you think about those kinds of times in, in, in comparison to where we are now and how terrible we all feel. But, I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, sitting as I'm sitting now in London and bombs dropping on the place that could actually kill you. Absolutely. So I, I really think that looking at... I mean, it's wonderful for me that I get to come here and, and see that dome in reality a couple of times a week. And it's wonderful looking at it and just being reminded that St. Paul's has been through some other huge difficulties mm. um, and it has withstood it. And someone actually wrote in their diary uh, just after that, uh, that day of the 29th of December, 1940, the next morning, she left London Bridge Station on her way to work. And she wrote that she saw the dome of St. Paul's 
rising up out of the ashes. Mm. And she felt that if St. Paul's Cathedral could withstand the Blitz, then so could London and so could Londoners. Yeah. And I think that for many people, it, it remains as a symbol of that kind of resilience, but also, as I said, of, of hope, the hope of rebirth and resurrection and better things coming. Yes, I think that's true. And historically, of course, it's very significant. It, it, it houses... Um, um, the, the, the burial sites of Christopher Wren himself, uh, the Duke of Wellington, uh, Horatio Nelson, Alexander mm-hmm. Fleming, Ethelred the Unready. I mean, it's quite a cast, that, isn't it? It really is. And uh, yeah, and there's lots of artists that have been that have been buried here as well. And many, many more people that are remembered here. Mm. So we have a lovely memorial to Florence Nightingale. Um, there are a lot of memorials to various people that were real kind of radicals and reformers of their time, real philanthropists, people who were trying to um, yeah, make London a better place for everybody. Oh, exactly right. And also, of course, I remember it very well, the day that Princess Diana uh, married Prince Charles. And um, I was going to ask if you can if you can still get married there just as an ordinary individual, can you? You can still get married here, but uh, you either have to be a member of staff, uh, a member of the congregation, or if you or someone in your immediate family has an OBE, then you could get married here or, um, in fact, have a baptism here. Mm. And we do have weddings and baptisms throughout the year and they're lovely occasions. Yes, I'm sure they are. And I guess under normal circumstances, maybe not anymore, but you would have regular sort of choral evenings, choirs, uh, uh, singing. But, uh, you know, the government doesn't like us singing at the moment, so you may not be able to do that. Well, we've just started back up. We are very, being very, very careful and very safe and we have changed things around. But uh, our Vickers Choral are back. And so it is possible to attend Sung Even Song. We've even sung every day at five o'clock, apart from a Sunday. It's at, at a different time. Okay. Um, and everyone is welcome to come. And we have um, done all of the safety measures to make it a safe, but still a very a beautiful thing mm. to experience. Wonderful. Well, Donna, you've been most helpful. Thank you very much indeed. Donna McDowell, Head of Schools and Family Learning at St. Paul's Cathedral. As I said, one of the greatest um, pieces of architecture, I think, in the world. Certainly one of the great sites on the skyline of London. Uh, you can see it behind me here uh, in our studios. We can see it from this building very clearly. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, and if you get a chance to go and visit it and you haven't, you really should. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.